All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. All right, guys, welcome back. We are now doing our second part about the placental pathology report as requested by one of our listeners. Um, So what are our learning objectives today, Nick? Yeah, so again, today's part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, we definitely recommend going back and listening to it. It is a pretty short podcast and just is a nice foundation. But for part two today, we're going to review some more common placental pathology findings and then also discuss a few less common ones that are important to know. And then we'll also really highlight the findings that will be significant for future pregnancies. Um, And just like we mentioned at the top of the last podcast, there's a great article um, from Contemporary OBGYN that we will link to on the website that is just great if you're somebody who's more of a visual or reading type of learner. So before we get started in getting too deep down the rabbit hole here, Faye, You know, when I look at a placenta after a delivery, I'm often just like kind of holding up the membranes and then looking at the (laughs) the little mosaic um, uh, cotyledons and I'm like, okay, looks good. And don't think twice about it most often. Um, But when someone actually looks at the placenta, like really looks at the placenta like a pathologist would, what are they looking for anyways? Yeah, so I'm not going to pretend like I know all of the different staining and things like that the pathologists do. But in terms of the gross examination of the placenta, um, there are a few things to look at. And I'm just going to break this down into the umbilical cord, the membranes, and the placental parenchyma for my OBGYN brain because, again, everyone, we are not pathologists. Um, one note before that is to just kind of point out that fresh examination of the placenta is usually best. And the reason is because during fresh examination, we can do things like send cultures, we can send cytogenetic studies, and then also you can do injections of the placental vessels um, on fresh placentas, but not fixed ones. So now that we've said that, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what to look for in the umbilical cord. So what we want to comment on are things like the general appearance. So that will be like things like the color. Um, are there nodules? Are there strictures? Are there is there edema and coiling? And then usually the the pathologist will also discuss areas of placental insertion. So for example, do you have a velamentous cord insertion, a marginal insertion, things like that. And then the other things they'll talk about are things like the length of the 
umbilical cord? How long is it? Are there any true knots? How tight those true knots actually are? How many vessels there are, one or two? And I feel like we do these things anyway. And then the other things to also think about are things like hematomas, neoplasms, and cysts. All right, Nick, so that's the umbilical cord there. Talk to us a little bit more about things like the membranes and the placental parenchyma. Yeah, so the membranes, I think, are one that we look at, and often we think off just looking at the amount of membranes, right? We're worried about something being left behind. But actually kind of remarking upon the color of the membrane, and then also whether the umbilical cord itself, with respect to its insertion, inserts within the membrane or on a placenta. Again, you're worried about like a velamenous cord insertion, or if you're delivering someone with a visa previa, it's really remarkable to actually see those vessels coursing through the membranes. Finally, the placental parenchyma is the last thing that we should look at and comment upon. So, you know, in a pathology report, they'll comment specifically on the weight of the placenta and the percentile of that weight for gestational age. There is some correlation of placental size or placental weight, I should say, with birth weight. They'll also measure dimensions and comment on the general appearance of the placenta. So, you know, does it just look like normal placenta or are there other kind of things like a bilobed placenta? Or you may have heard of like an accessory lobe or succinctuate lobe um, that also would be worth commenting upon. On the maternal surface where you see those kind of cotyledon type of things, you should see a complete surface when looking at it grossly. So again, you shouldn't see any missing piece chunk that's kind of gone from the middle of it. Um, and when you look at that maternal surface as well, you also can see area of placental infarct. Um, so if you're dealing with someone who's had like a concern on ultrasound for an area of placental infarct, that may be an interesting area to take a look at. And then lastly, on the fetal surface, um, you're going to want to look at whether there are any large vessels that are coursing out near the edge of the placenta. Again, thinking about the consequences of those like vasa previa or velamentous cord insertions. Um, if there are any cysts on that fetal side that might be present, things like choriangiomas, if there are subchorionic hematomas, they'll show up there. Um, there are a good number of kind of findings that you can look at on the fetal surface. And I think after delivery, we tend to neglect the fetal surface a little bit other than just looking at the cord insertion in the membrane. So definitely take a closer look the next time you've got a delivery. All right, so, but like you said, Faye, we are not pathologists. So ultimately we can take a look at this, but the pathologists are going to render a report that's much more complete and they are trained to look at that and really kind of give us a good report. So what are the common findings and what should we be looking for in the report? Yeah, so I'm going to again qualify this by saying that we are not pathologists and there are so many things that pathologists will include in their reports. And I think I'm just going to pick out some of the more important things that we as OBGYNs should look for. So those things include placental weight, um, areas of infarction or vessel arthrosclerosis, um, as well as infection. So the first thing is looking at placental weight. There are some types of chronic stress that may lead to smaller placentas. So think about things like chronic hypertension, you know, pre-existing diabetes, things like that that can usually produce placentas that are less than the 10th percentile. So this can give us a clue into, I think, you know, what we already know, that potentially there was chronic stress um, that led to a smaller placenta that could then lead to a smaller baby. 
However, there are some pitfalls because there are definitely conditions that lead to fetal stress that can also make placentas abnormally large. And the, the biggest example, of course, is high drops. So definitely looking at the placental weight is one thing we should be doing. What's the next thing, Nick? Let's talk about infarction or vessel arthrosclerosis. So these are things that are related most typically to hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And what you may see in terms of a pathology description would be phrases like fibrinoid necrosis of the vessel wall, perivascular infiltrates of white blood cells, maybe a comment on areas of infarction itself. Um, you can also see kind of in this category areas of placental abruption potentially. But remember, abruption is a clinical diagnosis, not a pathologic one. And this is because there can be small areas of bleeding, placental infarct, etc. that are not really clinically relevant. And so they're not necessarily going to change your management. Remember, with abruption, we're really worried about changes in something going on with fetal oxygenation or perfusion of the placenta. And so what we look at from an abruption perspective really is more a clinical thing. And on a pathology report, you know, it, something that might look like an abruption could be very, very small, truthfully. Under a microscope, you can get you know, areas of abruption appearing as like retromembranous or intradecidual hemorrhage, irregular basal intervillous thrombi, um, recent villus stromal hemorrhage, but it's not necessarily specific, and some of those findings can actually be seen at the time of normal delivery as well. Um, so while your clinical suspicion for abruption might be augmented by a pathology report, the pathology report doesn't necessarily define abruption. Um, so again, you got to have the clinical suspicion to go along with that too. Faye, the last thing that we should talk about, of course, is infection. Yeah, I feel like I often see chorea amnionitis or, or like velitis or something written all over the reports, even when the patient didn't actually have clinical choreo. And so, you know, sometimes what will happen is a patient will message you and say, oh my gosh, I had this infection that I looked up when I got my PATH report sent to me. Why didn't I get antibiotics? So I think it's important to make that distinction. And we'll talk now about what the pathologists actually see. So the histopathologic findings of possible infection are things that you know we probably already know, which are neutrophilic um, inflammation of the chorion and the amnion, which makes sense. You can also see inflammatory infiltrates of the vascular portion of the umbilical cord or even Wharton's jelly. The pitfall really is that clinical di clinically diagnosed chorioamnionitis or triple I may not always be seen on histology and vice versa. And the reason is because, you know, clinically, it's possible that there are other inflammatory processes going on, or chorea was diagnosed by maternal fever, which can be caused by many other things like mesoprostol or epidural use, which we talked about before. So it's possible that histologically, we're seeing chorea amnionitis, and then clinically, maybe there is other inflammatory processes um, that's going on um, that's not making us suspicious for chorea amnionitis. And then histologically, just remember that evidence of inflammation on histology does not always mean that there's a microbiologic evidence of infection. So cultures of amniotic fluid or membranes do not document a bacterial infection in 25 to 30% of placentas with histologic, histologic infection or chorioamnionitis. So it's important to kind of let your patients know that sometimes the pathologist can see what looks like inflammation and look like chorioamnionitis, but really, again, it's a clinical diagnosis. 
All right, Nick. So now that we've kind of talked about those three things to look out for, of course, knowing that there are multiple other things to see, how does this really affect our practice um, or patients' future pregnancies? Because I think that's what we really care about, right, as OBGYNs when we're looking at our PATH reports. No, absolutely. Um, And, you know, there is some data actually that exists that some placental pathologies can lead to recurrence of poor outcomes in future pregnancies. So, for example, there is a study that demonstrated inflammation in the placenta, i.e. velitis, was associated with recurrent preterm birth and spontaneous preterm birth. And so, as we're aware, there's some thought in the preterm birth community about, you know, low-lying levels of chronic endometritis or other things like that can lead to recurrent miscarriage or preterm birth um, and interventions that are being tested to try and address those issues. Um, The current issue, though, kind of leading from that is while research has shown the associations, there isn't anything that exists currently that is clinically proven to improve outcomes. This sparks definitely some interesting debate about tamping down inflation, though. Now, one of the thoughts of how progesterone works is that it can be anti-inflammatory, like 17-OHP gets metabolized into cortisol. It's a steroid, right? So that's one thought of like why it might work if you're in the pro-progesterone camp. Um, Similarly, there's some observation that the use of antenatal steroids seems to temporarily improve preeclampsia. And so is that because of some anti-inflammatory effect of those steroids in helping the placenta essentially recover from some inflammatory process? This is all speculative. So um, we aren't recommending using chronic steroids in any way, shape, or form to prevent preeclampsia. This is not a super satisfying answer, but it's one of the things that, again, is being addressed in sort of the more like basic and translational research areas of our field, and so may ultimately lead to practice change down the line. So it's worth paying attention to. What about kind of moving beyond this inflammatory hypothesis, Faye? What are some other things that we might glean from a PATH report that can lead us to an option for future pregnancy? Yeah, so other predictions are things like abnormal placentations, you know, placental accreta spectrum. So we know that there's a 25 to 30% recurrence risk based off of findings of histological examinations of the placenta for PAS. Um, Again, I feel like as you said before, Nick, I'm not convinced that this is necessarily clinically useful unless during delivery there was not a diagnosis of accreta and we just see it actually on the pathology. Because certainly if there's focal accreta or accreta that's diagnosed clinically, I think, again, we would, again, counsel the patient about this increased recurrence risk just based off of our clinical suspicion. I think it's also really important to talk about what placental pathology can't do. Yeah, so... No, unfortunately, there are limitations, and I think we've kind of started to address a lot of this, Faye, but the literature definitely suggests that widespread pathologic examination of the placenta does not prognosticate adverse childhoods or neurologic outcomes. Um, There are some selected cohorts that exist where you might be able to see association, but again, it it really is not a... it's not a pathology report that's like a aha, this is what happens type of thing. Like you kind of get in other areas of pathology where you get a true diagnosis out of it, right? But placental pathology, you know, in addition to just some of these associations that we've mentioned, can 
do some things. And one area in particular that can be helpful is giving patients some sense of closure on poor outcomes. Placental pathology can be very useful, actually, in helping to determine the etiology of stillbirth, particularly after 24 weeks of gestation. Placental examination has been shown in studies to be useful in up to 64% of cases of stillbirth, compared to only 12% yield for karyotype and less than half a percent yield for parvovirus testing, just by comparison. And so again, in these stillbirth cases, particularly later stillbirths, um, placental path actually can be very, very helpful. We need to recognize, though, that while this may give patients closure in that acute event, um, it's still very, very limited in terms of predictive value for future pregnancies. Um, so it really may not give us a lot of sense towards the future, other than just, you know, like we would for any patient who has a stillbirth, sort of heighten our suspicion and our, lower our threshold for testing and intervention in those future pregnancies. The last thing that I want to ask about, Faye, in terms of research surrounding this is about the medico-legal realm and placental pathology. Um, what should we know in that? Yeah, so I think people are often concerned that something that is seen on placental pathology can be used um, in court by their patients, or potentially there are findings on the placenta report that could refute a legal claim. And again, I think we have to, you know, first say that we are not lawyers, and so we definitely don't know the strict code of the law. Um, but when we look at the scientific literature, a Green Journal article that looked broadly in the literature for placental examinations that showed that there was, um, you know, evidence where the placental pathology actually refuted cases showed that really there was just anecdotal evidence at best. Um, so for example, in one analysis of 209 malpractice claims, only two cases were claimed to have been successfully defended by evidence gained through placental examination alone. So certainly I think while people may use placental pathology in their legal arguments, it seems like placental pathology by itself is not necessarily super helpful. Um, uh, at least if we're looking at those numbers in defending legal cases. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I feel like, you know, a lot of these are just not as satisfying as I wish they could be. Um, but why don't we go ahead and summarize? Yeah, so remember that um, when you get started with placental examination, there are a couple of things that we'd recommend looking at. So you want to first do a fresh examination of the placenta and your pathologists want to do that too, because cultures, cytogenic studies, and vessel injection can be performed on fresh placentas. These things can't be performed on fixed placentas though. With the rest of the placenta, again, you want to take a close look at the umbilical cord. You want to take a look at the membranes and not just the amount of membranes, but exactly the relationship to the umbilical cord and that regard, and also take a look at the placental parenchyma, both the maternal surface as well as the fetal surface to evaluate for abnormality. In terms of common findings and things that we should look for on the report, we should look at some of the things like placental weight, because certain things like chronic stress can lead to smaller placentas and smaller babies. We should also look for things like infarctions, areas of vessel arthrosis, to specifically look to look for evidence of things like hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And then the last thing is to look for evidence of infection, so histopathological findings um, that 
correlate with neutrophilic inflammation of the chorion and amnion, for example. I think it's also important here to mention that while um, histopathologically it may look like there is inflammation or infection, um, that 25 to 30% of placentas with this finding don't actually have a documented bacterial infection, so nothing really grows out on the micro. And then also that sometimes patients may be diagnosed with choreo, but then actually don't have any histo histopathological findings of that on the placenta. Placental pathology, unfortunately, is limited in its ability to detect recurrence or predict recurrence of poor outcomes in future pregnancy. There is some association with things like villitis or chronic endometritis that might be linked towards you no know, preterm birth and infection, um, and then some thought about anti-inflammatories helping to cool some of that inflammatory process in the placenta, just based on anecdote, though. And so, again very speculative, but overall placental pathology is kind of limited. It's not going to be able to prognosticate anything with respect to adverse childhood or neurologic outcomes. Um, there can be associations, but again, nothing that convincing. But where placental pathology can be really useful is giving patients closure on things like poor outcomes, and in particular, stillbirth after 24 weeks. We would wholeheartedly recommend placental examination as it can be useful in up to 64% of cases of stillbirth. From a medical legal perspective, the placental pathology report doesn't really carry a lot with respect to defending malpractice claims or advocating malpractice claims, and so it's not something that we would necessarily be for or against in that particular arena, but obviously talk with your malpractice lawyers in that regard. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsRiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsRiverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go ahead and go onto our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash CreogsRiverCoffee. We have show notes for this episode, as well as all of our prior episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsRiverCoffee.com. And if you want to give us a suggestion for an episode, if you have corrections for this episode, or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us, creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>